This season of The Francis Effect is sponsored in part by Franciscan Media, seeking to spread the gospel in the spirit of St. Francis. Franciscan Media publishes books by authors like Richard Rohr, Heather King, and Ronald Rollheiser. Get 25% off your first order in the store when you use the code FRANCISFX, that's Francis, the letter F and the letter X, at franciscanmedia.org. That's franciscanmedia.org. This season of The Francis Effect is brought to you by Liturgical Press in Collegeville, Minnesota. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality, evolving to serve the changing needs of the Christian church. They produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all readers looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Hello, and welcome to the Francis Effect Podcast. My name is David Dalt. I host a radio show called Things Not Seen about culture and faith, and I'm an assistant professor of Christian spirituality at the Institute of Pastoral Studies at Loyola University, Chicago. I'm here with my two friends, Heidi Schlumpf and Father Dan Haran. Heidi is senior correspondent at National Catholic Reporter, a publication that connects Catholics to church, faith, and the common good with independent news, analysis, and spiritual reflection. Father Dan is professor of philosophy, religious studies, and theology, and director of the Center for the Study of Spirituality at St. Mary's College in Notre Dame, Indiana. He is also affiliated professor of spirituality at the Oblate School of Theology in San Antonio, Texas. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss news and events through a lens of our shared Catholic faith. Father Dan and Heidi, welcome to you both. Father Dan, how have you been? I've been all right. It's always good to be with the two of you, and I look forward to every time we have a session like this. I was thinking about some of the things that's, that have been happening since we last recorded and plugging along. David, you aren't familiar with this since you are enjoying the life of a professor on sabbatical, but those of us still in the trenches, we're in week three of the semester, and that's going well, weather notwithstanding. But I was thinking, in fact, before we started recording today, we were just chatting in general about books, and I know that's something you often give updates about. And I realize I don't really talk that much about what I'm working on in, in my books, and maybe people are interested and maybe they're not, but here you go. I was thinking in part about how I have a book coming out next year on Lent, a series of Lenten reflections for liturgical press. And I keep forgetting about it because it's a project in order to get it out and then translate it into Spanish so it's available in both languages. It has to be done really far in advance. And so when that happens, I, I kind of forget, oh yeah, that thing's coming out. So I've been working with my editor there and very excited for that to see the light of the day and probably at the end of this calendar year in advance of next Lent. And I also have a book coming out in May with Paulus Press called Fear and Faith, Hope and Wholeness in a Fractured World. And I'm really excited about that one coming out. Yeah, more to say about that in the meantime. But the reason I got thinking about this is because this morning I was working on a project, my kind of ongoing academic project is a book on Christology that I know some listeners have been long awaiting. I've talked about this for a while. I've taught courses on it, given lectures. But it's basically a survey of superlapsarian Christology, which is a fancy way of saying that God would have become human even without Adam and Eve's sin or humanity's sinfulness. And so this is a orthodox 
legitimate, perfectly valid, theologically sound understanding of the motive or the divine reason for the incarnation. It's just that sin tends to be the preoccupation of us, particularly in the Western churches, and has dominated at least the last thousand years of our thinking. And so we're inclined to say, oh, Felix culpa, or oh, happy fault, oh, thank God humanity sinned, because without that, Jesus would never have come. But in fact, scripture all the way through the last 2,000 years of theological reflection shows that there's another way to think about this, that God would have become human anyway. So if that sounds interesting to you, stay tuned. That is uh, that should so be out next cool. Year. I just love <laughs> is. thinking yeah. about that. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Heidi, what have you been up to? What's going on? Well, learning new words, apparently, because superlapsarian is a word that I'd never heard before. <laughs> so I'm super, <laughs> I wrote that one down. I'm going to have to check that out and anxiously awaiting your book. I am not writing any books, which I am happy to say, although I don't know, maybe there's a book in me someday or another book in me someday. But I have been doing some freelance writing since I became a senior correspondent, a little more wiggle room in my schedule to write for some other publications. And tomorrow I'm going to be on another podcast, U.S. Catholic Magazine, published by the Claritians, which is my former employer. I used to work there. They have a podcast called Glad You Asked, and it piggybacks on a column that runs in the magazine answering questions people may have about the faith. And I'm going to be speaking about Mary Magdalene, which I've long studied because I did a piece about her, geez, some 20 years ago, <laughs> which makes me feel old. But otherwise, just regular life here, parenting, hanging out with my family, with friends. I have a couple friends who've been ill, and it's been nice to have some space in my schedule to take care of them. I visited my parents last week. So just everyday life here. How is sabbatical life, David? Oh, lots to tell. First of all, I'm just really happy to hear Dan talk about all the books that he's working on because it makes me feel less frantic and manic in my own. <laughs> because just the way that my mind works, I work on multiple projects at once. And just I'll quickly go through. I'm finishing the final revisions on this book that has never ended called The Accessorized Bible. I'm really excited about it. I'm about to send it to my editor at Yale. And I'm finally pleased with what it's saying. Orson Welles once said that films are never finished, they're simply abandoned. I feel that way about this book, but it is, it is being abandoned in a state that I at least feel like is coherent. Immediately after that, I'm turning around a journal article for the Journal of Scriptural Reasoning. I've been asked to comment on a chapter in my dear friend and colleague Jacob Goodson's book, The Philosopher's Playground, and I'm taking the chapter on Jürgen Habermas. And so I'm going into critical theory, jumping into that. Immediately after that, the revision of my dissertation, The Covert Magisterium, is going to Roman and Littlefield Press. So I've been working on that as well and revising that. And then on on deck after that, I have been working with a student at Institute of Pastoral Studies. We did an independent study in the fall on queer theology and particularly the institutional side of queer theology and how individuals sort of function within institutions that are trying to say that they don't exist or that they need to be erased or that they need to change their narrative about themselves. And the material in that was so rich that we're now in continued conversations to think about turning that into a book, and the working title of that is Dignified Agents, 
Queer Theology in the Key of Laudato Si. And then following the development of that and getting a proposal together for that, I've got some proposals on a book on spirituality and a proposal on a primer on materialism. So all of that is is going into the summer for my sabbatical. So even though supposedly this is a time of rest, I'm trying to keep the candles burning. I just also want to say, last week, I had the opportunity to go up to New York for a day and a half, and I got a chance to hang out with all of my friends from Commonweal Magazine. I've had a long relationship with them, and it was just really good to see them. They also do a podcast called The Commonweal Podcast, which I highly recommend. It's amazing conversations, one of one of the most important and pivotal conversations for my thinking in the last six months has been a conversation that they did with Paul Ely about the results of the first round of the Synod on Synodality, and he gave me a completely new way to think about things, so can't recommend that podcast highly enough. And they're about to start their centennial year, their 100th anniversary, so very excited about that. And also in New York, and I love working with students, but I especially love it when the spark with students continues and blossoms into friendship. And so we have a, my, my family has a friend who was a student of mine when I taught down in Memphis, and they have have remained a, just a dear friend throughout my family's travels from Memphis to Chicago, and they're now in New York, and they're working in journalism. And so I had a chance to meet with my dear friend and their partner and just to reconnect. And so I just, I'm coming into this week with a lot of energy, even though also I'm a little exhausted. So that's what's going on with me right now. The other thing that I want to say is that my family has been thinking a lot about our two kids. And I think I've shared that both of our kids are neurodivergent. Both of them are on the autism spectrum and one has an anxiety disorder and the other has ADHD. And our younger kid has really been beaten down by school. But last night we were all sitting at dinner together and The initial sort of agreement was that our younger kids could come for the initial part of dinner and then could leave when they when their sort of batteries were gone. But they stayed through the entire meal. We had uproarious laughter. There was full participation. It just makes me feel like something is going right and the batteries are not getting drained quite as much as they were last year. So even though we're not out of the woods yet, everything is tending in the right direction. And so for those of you who are parents who maybe are having similar struggles right now, I just want to say, keep at it. There's hope and never stop going to bat for your kids. So that's my catch up. That's what's going on with me. Phew, that makes me tired just listening to all that, David. (laughs) Yeah, and I'll say that using me, invoking me as a bar against which your multiple projects can be measured is a futile effort because I don't do nearly as much juggling as you do, David. They just tend to come out at the same time, but I'm a much more singular project kind of guy. So I admire your ability to keep those plates spinning. Well, thank you. But I'm so looking forward to seeing and reading what you're coming up with because your last couple of books have just been real treasures for me and for my thinking. And speaking of treasures for thinking, listeners, we have lots of stuff coming up today on the show. In our first segment, we're going to be looking at the recent judgment against former President Donald Trump to the tune of $83 million in the E. Jean Carroll defamation case, the second E. Jean Carroll defamation case. Then in the second segment, we're going to be looking at the recent papal audience that Vatican journalists had with the Pope and what we might learn from that and what communication in the 21st century for this ancient institution might be. 
And then in our final segment, we're going to be airing an interview that Heidi did with Ansel Augustine. He is the director of Black Catholic Ministries for the Diocese of New Orleans, and he is going to be telling us about some recent projects that he's been working on. So all that's coming up on The Francis Effect. Please stay with us. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Dan Horan, and I'm here with Heidi Schlumpf and David Dahl. Every couple of weeks, we get together to talk about news and events, culture, and all sorts of things through the lens of our shared Catholic faith. When thinking about Donald Trump's legal troubles, it's hard to know which direction to look these days. Not only is the former president facing 91 counts in his criminal indictments in courtrooms across several states, but he continues to be plagued on every side by civil lawsuits as well. The latest of these has just concluded this past week. In 2019, freelance writer and columnist E. Jean Carroll accused then-President Trump of committing sexual assault against her in the 1990s. Trump then made a series of statements that not only denied the accusation, but disparaged Ms. Carroll directly, drawing into question both her character and her physical appearance. According to Carroll, Trump calling her a liar, quote, ended the world I had been living in, unquote, and had a severe negative impact on her work as an advice columnist. Moreover, Ms. Carroll reported receiving continued harassment and even death threats following Trump's remarks. In 2023, Carroll won a defamation suit against Donald Trump with a judgment of $5 million. In the wake of that suit, Trump continued to make disparaging remarks about Carroll, prompting this most recent lawsuit. In the end, the jury awarded E. Jean Carroll $65 million in punitive damages, $11 million for damage to her reputation, and another $7.3 million for a total of $83 million. Trump is almost certain to appeal the verdict. David, all this is coming right as primary season is heating up. Is this lawsuit having any effect on Trump's voter base? What can we be learning from all of this? Well, the very first thing I think that everyone was wondering was what punitive amount could be levied against the former president to actually get him to stop causing insults and other sorts of damage on social media and in other forms of media. And we may have found it with this $83 million because up to the judgment being rendered, Donald Trump continued to make defamatory statements and continued to use his bully pulpit to try and disparage Miss Carroll. But since the verdict has been rendered, there has not been a specific naming of E. Jean Carroll. There has been innuendo and inference, but no longer the direct and explicit naming that we had seen before. So that's at least some data point that's interesting for us to look at. I'm much more concerned about the question of the voter base. Because what we have seen, at least anecdotally and in some of the polling, is that when these sorts of judgments are levied against Donald Trump, his voter base doesn't abandon him. Instead, they intensify, and he even picks up some support. And so if you think about going back to the Obama administration, In the Obama administration, we had a scandal for an entire news cycle about the fact that President Obama wore a tan suit and how the color of his suit disparaged the honor of the presidency. And yet now we have a president who is credibly accused and convicted of sexual assault and who is facing criminal charges in 91 separate indictments 
I don't know what to do about this right now, and I'd be interested in both of your thoughts. Well, I do think it's a victory for Ms. Carroll and for women to have some consequences, not only to the sexual assault, but the harassment and defamation that happened, that and defamation with malice that was found in the aftermath. What's interesting to me is how pervasive this is now. So the fact that he calls her a liar and disparages her personally, her looks and that kind of thing. Donald Trump talks like this all the time about everyone. He talks this way about Nikki Haley, about all kinds of people. And we have a huge swath of people in our culture now who think it's okay to talk like this. You know, it's interesting to me that not all, but a lot of this defamation happened on social media where every day I I watch people call me a heathen, tell me I'm going to hell. As a journalist, I have thick skin and that just rolls off. And I know some people have exited, like you, Dan, exited social media because of this. But I do think that women disproportionately get this kind of harassment, especially on social media, and that often it is can be threatening and even dangerous. And the fact that the person who led our country from the presidency does this, has given permission to all kinds of people to talk this way to other people. So the fact that there's some consequences here and financial ones, which is all that Donald Trump seems to care about, I think is a win, (laughs) at least as long as it's not overturned. And it's my understanding that he has to set some of this money aside even while he appeals. So he will take a financial hit, even at least temporarily. Yeah, I have lots of thoughts. Just one callback since Heidi mentioned it. Just to be clear that I did leave Twitter or X as it's called now, but I am still on Facebook and Instagram and some other social media. And yeah, I've over many years have experienced a lot of harassment and trolling um, and that wasn't actually the primary reason why I left. It really had to do with the, the basically what I've called the cesspool, the moral cesspool that X has become, that it's just not really a place that, that where the positive sides outweigh just the negative sides and what the intention of the ownership of that platform and the kind of preponderance of discussion there has been moving toward, which is really disturbing, very offensive, especially to those who are in the most marginal and minoritized communities in our society. But I do know both of you are there. Heidi, I know the pressures as well of being a journalist and needing to feel like you need to be connected. And David, you are something of a Twitter wizard. So I don't know how you do it, but that's just an aside. But going back to this case, I think on the one hand, I do agree. I agree with everything you said, Heidi. I think at least symbolically, it's a win, right? The question does stand, will she ever see this money? Trump is famous for not paying people. This will obviously go to appeal. I do not think he's going to win. It's not going to be overturned. And I think he and his legal team actually know that deep down, which is why some of these questions about whether he's going to apply for a bond, whether he's going to find some sort of liquid from the sale of properties, you know, he's not actually a very wealthy person in terms of liquidity. He doesn't have a lot of cash. He has a lot of places that are valued. And as we've seen in other lawsuits, including the New York State lawsuit against his business practices and his family's business, is that the meaning, the valuation that's tied to some of these properties are completely bogus in many instances. So it's not clear how much money he actually has, but $83 million is a lot. And I think what's significant about that symbolically as well is that it's really the only thing Trump cares about, right? He cares about money. He's famously used money out of his own political action campaign committee to pay his own legal fees, to pay for his own personal needs at times. He claimed in the first run for the presidency in 2015, 2016, that because he was 
was quote unquote so wealthy that he didn't have to kowtow to donors and the donor class. Uh, and yet he put, as I recall, virtually nothing of his own money or capital into the campaign. So he's very greedy, it would seem, around his own money. And so being hit with a judgment like this, I imagine, strikes his ego and it strikes his pocketbook. I'll just say one thing I'll name that continues to trouble me and I think follows on what you were saying, David, which is Trump is very skilled at the jujitsu of spinning some of these things. He's very adept at making himself the victim of something in which he is quite literally the perpetrator. And in, like you said, Heidi, I think that has been a model for a lot of everyday kind of conversations and if not always expressed articulations than internalized thoughts that people, particularly those who are drawn to follow him and support him, have adopted. We can see this around questions of privilege, around gender, around sexual orientation or identity. Who becomes the quote-unquote victim here? Who is being attacked and so forth is really flipped upside down in dangerous ways. I'm going to pick up on that and I'm going to spin it into a question for you, Heidi, because what you're talking about, Dan, is a kind of static effect that Trump and the people that are working with Trump, like I'm thinking of, of his attorney, Alina Haba and others, were using around this particular legal proceeding where even though very clearly this was not a trial to adjudicate whether or not he was guilty of sexual assault at the beginning of this particular trial, that had already been established. He kept trying to relitigate that and keep that a sort of live question. And whether or not various sorts of pieces of material could be entered into the proceedings and at what time when he made a final statement as part of his testimony, what was limited there, all of that was spun outside the courtroom and became a kind of constant upheaval of the facts. And so my question to you, Heidi, is how do journalists work to sift through at moments like that when someone is literally leveraging all sorts of nonsense and throwing that into the news cycle? How do we help to keep the story straight? And how do we help to help the public to keep the story straight? Yeah, well, that's a great question. And it's increasingly difficult to do because even if reputable journalists do that, corner sift the fact from the fiction, not everyone is paying attention to reputable journalists anymore. So the kind of person, Dan, that you're talking about who's buying that spin that Trump does is not reading the New York Times and the Washington Post. They're listening to the Drudge Report or all these other right-wing places that amplify that spin. And I think some of this, this way things get transformed is reminding me what's happened in a couple of movements over the last years. So we had the Me Too movement where a lot of attention was brought to the issue of sexual assault of women and sexual harassment of women, especially in workplaces. And you had this explosion of women saying, this is how pervasive this is. It happens to, ev to almost everyone. And people said, hashtag me too. It happens to me as well. And then there was the teeter-totter kind of swung back to the other side where, oh, have we gone too far? Are men afraid to do anything? And do we have, our sons are going to be, can't do it. We're so nervous. They're going to be unjustly accused. And then similarly, we had a couple of years ago in the aftermath of the George Floyd murder, we had this movement towards the need to do better in terms of diversity, equity, and inclusion in our workplaces, but everywhere. And now there's the anti-DEI 
movement that's gaining traction. And maybe some of that is just natural, that when things go to one side, then there's some pullback to a level of equilibrium. But if equilibrium is being okay with racism and sexism and sexual assault, that's not an equilibrium I would like to return to. Well, Heidi, as I hear you say that, it brings to mind something that the philosopher Hannah Arendt said more than 60 years ago, and that is that facts are fragile things. And when the mechanisms that we use together to generate facts are corroded or destroyed, it's very hard to get back to a common set of evidences that we can all discuss and try and use to reason together towards a common future and a common good. So right now, listeners, we are in a moment of fragile facts. And I really want to say to everyone listening to us, this is one of the opportunities of synodality right now. Because Pope Francis is not simply introducing us, reintroducing this idea of synodality into the church because it's a cute idea, but because we are at an acute moment where we have a failure not only to know how to talk to one another, but how to listen carefully to each other and to work together to establish commonalities that we can then use to reason together towards a shared future and a common good. So I would encourage everyone listening. Any opportunity you have in a small group, in your parish, or in any sort of circumstance to try out some of these synodal practices, to try out an active listening where you invite the Spirit, to try out a way of speaking with irenic and pacific passion with each other so that you're not creating more heat but more light. That's the challenge for all of us right now. And so as we're moving away from this particular topic, I would just encourage all of our listeners to keep that in their hearts and in their prayers together. You're listening to The Francis Effect. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalt, and I'm here with Dan Haran and Heidi Schlumpf. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss a variety of topics from a perspective informed by our Catholic faith. How does the world learn about what the Pope says or does? When something happens in the Vatican or in a new dicastery document or note, or when a note is published, how does word get out about it? The answer is journalists, professionals who know how to cover breaking news, do feature writing, and engage in skillful investigative reporting. Journalists communicate the key details of events around the globe, literally the who, what, why, when, and where of life. Recently, a special group of journalists, those accredited by the Vatican, gathered in the Vatican for an event with Pope Francis, where he both thanked them for their work and encouraged them to continue. Although many of these journalists from around the world are in regular proximity to the Pope and other Vatican officials, the January 22nd meeting was the first formal audience with the Pope since the International Association of Journalists accredited by the Vatican was founded in 1978. As Vatican News reported, quote, Pope Francis noted that being a journalist is a vocation, 
something like that of a doctor who chooses to love humanity by caring for its illnesses. In a way, this is what a journalist does, choosing to personally touch the wounds of society and the world, he said. It's a calling that emerges from a young age and leads to understanding, shedding light on, and recounting, unquote. Among the topics Pope Francis engaged with in his 12-minute prepared remarks for the organization, before individually meeting the approximately 150 journalists gathered, including an expression of gratitude for the way journalists covered the sexual abuse in the church. Dan, you have a background in journalism. What struck you about the Pope's remarks at this event earlier this month? Well, I do have a background in journalism, but nothing compared to our colleague and co-host, Heidi Schlump. So I'm not worthy to untie her sandals, as John the Baptist might say. But I'll kick this off. I think one of the things you mentioned, David, was one of the things that struck me very, I think, tenderly, which is the acknowledgement of the profession of journalism in whatever form, whether that's print journalism, broadcast, photography, and so forth, as a vocation, as a calling. I thought that was very touching and something that can be easily overlooked. Journalists by training, at least good journalists, are meant to be as objective as they can be and disclosive when there might be conflicts or appearances of conflicts. And because of that style, they can and ought to, in many ways, recede into the story, right behind the story, and not be the story themselves. And so in that regard, they're always there, right? They're, as you said at the beginning, how does the world know anything about Pope Francis? How do we know when things are happening? It's because it's being communicated and written up and broadcasted and photographed by these professionals who are never meant to be in the spotlight. So that the Pope took time to acknowledge their service, their good work is really meaningful and to call it a vocation, as I think it is. The other thing, too, that really struck me is... The need for that affirmation of that important and very difficult and time-consuming work, that is a true profession, as he analogized this, like a medical physician, a medical doctor, or somebody like this. To be good at this requires not only textbook kind of training and academic training, but years of interning, internships and practice and making mistakes, correcting them and learning from mentors and so forth. And this is really needed, I think, in an age where there are, as we talked in the first segment, talking about Donald Trump and some of his followers who attack all kinds of people. One of the major targets of that attack is professional journalism. And as we discussed in the previous segment, a lot of those people who are avid followers of Donald Trump are not getting their news from trusted professional journalists. They're getting them from all sorts of alternative outlets and social media. So the need for what you refer to, quoting Hannah Arendt, as those fragile facts, you know, to, to get those facts, we need journalists. So I appreciate that. But I'm very curious, Heidi, what you think. You're the pro here. Yes. Well, Pope Francis does like to talk about journalism and the media quite a bit, sometimes critically. And I should note that NCR's news editor, Joshua McAwee, our former Vatican correspondent, was at that meeting that you were talking about, David, at the beginning of this segment. And I would say, I think he sort he gets it, the profession that we do. I thought that turn of phrase that touching the wounds of society was particularly on target. On the other hand, journalists are not there to help the Pope. Even in Catholic journalism, where many of us see our profession as a vocation or the fact that we do it within church circles as a vocation, I think you always have to be careful about whether you're there in some sort of communications or public relations role or whether you're doing actual journalism that is objective. So this has 
been brought up, I think, with how Catholic journalism has been changing in this country. And right before this meeting with Vatican journalists, there was an announcement of yet another diocesan newspaper closing here in the U.S. So the Diocese of Peoria, just to the south and west of us here in Chicago, closed their diocesan newspaper. The Green Bay, Wisconsin paper closed at the end of the year. There have been, we continue to have these closings or transformations of diocesan newspapers into sort of soft news magazines or becoming parts of the communications slash public relations apparatus of a diocese or archdiocese. And I actually worked on a piece about this. It'll be coming out, I think, maybe next week for NCR. So look for that. But I think there are a lot of changes happening to the field that are affecting Catholic journalism. Also, right around this time, Los Angeles Times lays off 20% of its workforce, including many Latino and Latina journalists who are covering that particular demographic. Sports Illustrated laid off its entire staff, and who knows what's happening with that brand. So a lot of changes, as you mentioned, Dan, in the way people consume their news or get their information are affecting the profession of journalism and Catholic journalism, too. Yeah, I just want to pick up on something too, if I may, that relates to, I think, the work that that David and I do, especially as theologians, that I'm in a middle place because I put on a, I'm not a professional journalist by day, but I did stay at a Holiday Inn Express last night as a columnist, so I guess that kind of counts in the in-between space. But I liked what you said about how journalists are not the echo chambers of the Pope himself or of church institutions and authority but is really an institution intended to engage, to maintain that objectivity as much as possible, but also to ask the tough questions, right? A watchdog. And I think as theologians too, it's interesting, David, I'm curious about your experience. I find, especially with undergrads, I taught exclusively graduate students for many years and still do, but with my undergrad students who might be taking a kind of 101 class in theology to learn academic theology for the first time, they're surprised that this isn't just catechism 101, that this isn't just an extension of their high school or religious education or confirmation prep. And I think there are plenty of adults who don't understand what the work of theology is. Like many adults, they don't understand the work of journalism. I think there might be a Venn diagram that's rather overlapping there. Do you have that experience too, David? Does that resonate at all? I do. And I really love the generousness of this question because I've got a lot of thoughts. The first thing that I want to say is, you know, when we're teaching, exactly as you said, I, one of the first things that I say is that this is not a course in catechesis, and this is not a course in simple history, but rather, and particularly now that I'm working with master's students at IPS who are called to vocations of spiritual companionship to others, one of the first things I say is you're going out into a world that may not recognize your faith, and you need to learn how to speak and translate your faith into multiple dialects, not simply other Christian dialects, but also into non-Christian contexts and non-Christian situations. And so that's a wonderful opportunity if you have the intellectual humility to actually engage in that sort of translation work. There, there is, I think, of Cardinal Sarah 
and the statement attributed to him where he says it's not the job it's not the job of the church to listen but rather it is simply the job of the church to teach if we go into that kind of situation thinking that it is simply our job to dogmatically repeat things then we're going to have a kind of church that fails to listen to the least of these and now i want to bring in another kind of more spiritual wing of this. As I was listening to this conversation, I was called to mind someone that I think many of us in this conversation knew or knew of, the writer and theologian Phyllis Tickle, who talked a lot about emerging church issues. One of the statements from Phyllis Tickle really stays with me when I teach spirituality, and she said that religion functions best when it's an architecture of mysteries. I really like that phrase, an architecture of mysteries. But oftentimes we see, if we think about the spotlight case with the Catholic Church, that the Catholic Church didn't function as an architecture of mysteries, but rather as an architecture of secrecies. And so the value of a journalist is to help to remove those oftentimes authoritarian, oftentimes excluding and isolating secrecies to bring light back into the conversation so that we can return to the shared mysteries that we are exploring together, but not in the way that sort of says, but you get to be in and you get to be out and you're a good person and you're a bad person. All of those kind of putting people in cages, whether physical or spiritual. That's not what, at its best, I think the church or the vision of Pope Francis's church is about. It's about about helping people to become dignified agents of their own destiny. And so I want to say to Heidi, journalism is a vital part of that because too often people get trapped in these secrecies, and what you're doing is bringing real light and real balm in those situations. And so I just want to say rah-rah and hooray. Well, I like this parallel that both of you are drawing to the practice of theology and journalism, where we are, even though we're still members of the church, committed to the church, love the church, we ask questions. And that It's not out of some attempt to tear down the church, but actually to help the church to be the best that it can be by asking these hard questions or revealing secrecies. I will just admit, though, and you guys can say whether this is true for you as theologians, is that sometimes that can be difficult personally to all, you know, if the church is your source of spirituality and meaning and ultimate foundation of your whole life, and then you're asking these hard questions or revealing things that are not so nice about the church, it can be difficult. And I know that for me, there have been times in my almost 30-year career now where I, I had to take a little step back because it was really difficult. And what we see now is also going on in our writer culture with our politics, too. So it's a constant balancing act. And I think to have the Pope acknowledge that touching those wounds can be a challenging thing to do, I found that helpful to at least have him acknowledge that publicly. I'll just say that, yeah, I, what you just described, Heidi, definitely resonates with me. I'm thinking of a colleague of mine, a moral theologian, who I heard in a meeting that we were both at recently on a panel together, 
describe his work as not being about the kind of careerism that so many people, especially young people with unsettled, unstable markets are looking for, right? They're looking for their job and they're looking for the salary and they're looking for stability. He said, I didn't become a theologian for the big bucks. And I certainly didn't come to be a theologian for the fame because there's neither of those things. It is in many ways a thankless task. And I'm not complaining. And I don't hear you complaining either as a journalist, but particularly at the intersection of our faith and our professions, the fact that, as he said, he does this work because he loves the church. And that can be really, really painful. I, I Maybe it's a bridge too far, but I think about it analogously with some very difficult family dynamics that people experience in their own lives, where you love your family, you care about the family, but asking hard questions sometimes can be really disruptive and really dangerous and can be very emotionally draining. And so I think that's true as well. It's also very hurtful when fellow Christians or people who identify as Christian attack you because they misunderstand or because they disagree or because they're told lies, right? Like back to these fragile facts, if we can't agree to what is real, what is actual, which happens a lot in theology and happens a lot in journalism, then there can be a lot of hurt and a lot of harm. Well, Dan, you just mentioned the kind of attacks that can come, and Heidi, you've mentioned that earlier in the conversation. I want to say as well that I've been subject to those kind of insults and call-outs on social media. And listeners, we understand that maybe some of you are experiencing this as well. You've been told that your faith or your identity as a Catholic somehow is not good enough or not up to snuff. We know that you're listening to this program because you care deeply about the Church, and so do we. It may not always look like the official line, but we have no doubt that we are all walking together towards the same goal, which is the common good and the glory of Jesus Christ in the world. And so thank you for being with us on this journey. We're going to take a break right here. You're listening to The Francis Effect, and we'll be back in just a moment with Heidi's interview with Ansel Augustine. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Heidi Schlumpf with today's guest, Dr. Ansel Augustine, the Director of the Office of Black Catholic Ministries for the Archdiocese of New Orleans. Dr. Augustine also teaches at the Institute for Black Catholic Studies at Xavier University of Louisiana, the Graduate Theological Foundation, and the Institute for Ministry at Loyola University in New Orleans. He is an Emmy-nominated producer and award-winning author. Among his writings are the African-American Catholic Youth Bible and the book Leveling the Praying Field. He produced the documentary called Black Faith Matters. Throughout his career, Dr. Augustine has worked in youth ministry and prison ministry. He has served on the boards of several national organizations, including the National Catholic Young Adult Ministry Association and the National Federation of Catholic Youth Ministry. Dr. Augustine helped organize a meeting of young adult Black Catholics last November, where they discussed the realities young Black Catholics face in today's world and today's church. We're excited to have Dr. Augustine on The Francis Effect to talk about that gathering and what has come out of it. Welcome to the podcast, Ansel. We're glad to have you. Thank you, Heidi. I'm glad to be here. Well, let's start with that meeting in New Orleans last November. Could you tell our listeners a little bit about why it happened and what were some of the main takeaways? Okay. 
Well, then look at last November, 2023's meeting. We have to go back to January, 2019, when our late and my mentor, God rest his soul, Auxiliary Bishop Fernand Cherie gathered Black Catholic leaders from around the country here in New Orleans. And the different organizations, their leadership gathered here to talk about what do we need to do better to work together for our community and as a better way for us to be visible in the church. This is something that's endemic across cultural ties. Sometimes we work in our own silos and do our own ministry. We do great stuff in the Catholic church, but sometimes we're doing it in our own little section and nobody else knows. So the black bishops convened under Bishop Sharia's direction. He was the convener at the time. And we had this discussion about what needed to be done. So that took place in January, 2019, March, 2023. I'm getting my dates together. Father Henry Sands from the Black and Indian Mission Office reached out to me about doing a similar gathering, but with Black Catholic young adults, because we were talking about the biggest demographic that's missing in our community. And that was it. And this happens all over in other cultural groups, but specifically here, hearing these voices. I worked on a couple of gatherings with the USCCB, and the demographic that was hardest to get to the table was the African-American Catholic young adult demographic. When I say young adult, I'm saying 18 to 40 years old because of the lack of either connection or the lack of outreach or the lack of even just follow up with them after they, quote unquote, as we say, graduate from confirmation as some young adults do during that time period. So we're gathered here to hear their voices, to create a safe space for them, whether they were churched, unchurched, married, single, in school, whoever, so they could tell their voice about why they either love the church or struggle with the church and what can be done to address those issues. So out of that, the main takeaway was this 12-page document that we came with. We now, we had hundreds of issues on the board, church issues, Black Catholic community issues, and we narrowed it down to 10 each. So these 20 issues total in this document as a resource for the church itself, but also for the Black Catholic community to reinvigorate connections with these uh, young adults from the community as well. I know a couple of key members of that group just had a webinar last week that I watched, and there were hundreds of people at that mm-hmm. webinar. So I know there's a lot of interest in this topic. I looked at the report that came out of that meeting and those 20 issues that you were talking about. And what I took away from it was hearing how too often young Black Catholics say they don't feel that this is their church. There's a lack of representation, a lack of cultural expression. Could you talk a little bit about what some of these key issues were that they identified in that report that they face? Yes. So I've been in ministry. This marks my 25th anniversary of full-time ministry. And I started at my home parish, St. Peter Claver here in New Orleans, a large African-American Catholic parish, intentionally Afrocentric with the music style, gospel music, decorations. When I say decoration environment, just things that are there intentionally so that people, when they come in the church, they know who they are worshiping amongst, whether they're not from the community and different things like that. And that's in Treme, which is the oldest black neighborhood in the country, in, you know, and so it's intentional the way we do things. And so sometimes when we look outside of the church, a lot of my ministry in these 25 years, especially whether it's in the youth office here in the Archdiocese of New Orleans back in those days, or on a national level, when I've served on these boards, you said I've served on, is sometimes helping my counterparts and my colleagues understand why Black Catholics may not feel welcomed or included in the events, national events, other things like that. So what these young adults were talking about during this gathering is how are we getting leadership in place that understands us, looks like us, 
but more importantly, understands it. Because sometimes we can look alike, but may not have the same mindset on what is needed in the community. But so how to educate our colleagues on the issues that are impertinent to the Black Catholic community, creating resources and events that are relevant to them, and also including them in the decision-making process. Because many times we as church folk and leadership do stuff for, but not do stuff with. And Pope Francis is challenging us to do stuff with. But when we look at people on the peripheries, as Pope Francis talks about, going to the peripheries, not to bring Jesus there, but to encounter Jesus that's already there. This group in that space and place, whether they were, like I said, church to unchurched, there were very heated and passionate arguments on certain things and issues that came out in the document. They were there out of love. And there was definitely the Holy Spirit present in that room. And for us as church to see different perspectives and to see how Jesus is working in different ways in different spaces, what I think came out and what you'll see in the document is not an attack on anything, but it's almost like you said, people that love the church so much, they were able to sh- wanting to share what could be done better. Yeah. So talk a little bit about what you think might be the specific challenges that some of these young people raise that we really need to listen to young Black Catholics about. So I guess, like I said, the document in and of itself and the way we discussed issues to share were broken up into two groups, two camps, wider church and then Black Catholic community, just so people know where they fall. And some people overlap in both. But I think for the wider church in and of itself is people want to be heard. When we talk about the synod and synodality, brought together people that felt like they weren't heard. There was one young adult who had given up on the church. She was part of the LGBTQX plus community They felt like there was no space for her. And she said this was the first time in her adult life that she felt that there was a space in the church for her, this gathering. And then we talk about the effects of some of these synod gathering sessions where people have gathered and felt heard by the church, seen and heard. And in fact, you know, this year, September 9th, 2024, will mark the 40th anniversary of the groundbreaking document, what we have seen and heard by the Black bishops of the USCCB. And so we didn't know that was happening during this time. This was just us following the movements of the Holy Spirit and those that sponsored this event. But it's also like a groundbreaking moment of people hearing from people that they normally would not hear from. So yeah, there are a lot of issues that overlap with other young adult groups of other demographics. But I think in this group, they saw the issue of racism, sometimes otherwise referred to as white supremacy, prevalent in the church and discussions because they've been to churches where during the homily, they've been felt attacked or offended just by being maybe the lone minority or one of the few minorities in that space. Yeah. On the topic of racism, I know the report included some of that data from the Pew Research Center about Black Catholics and how they essential they consider confronting racism to be part of what the church should be doing. But then also, At the same time, many of them, or even a majority, I believe, of them, are attending a church that is predominantly white Mm -hmm. because of, and this is an issue, the closing of so many predominantly African-American parishes in our dioceses. So it seems like that's an issue that is for all Black Catholics, but specifically these young people, it's especially important. Yeah. And these are people, like I said, some are raised in the church, still in ministry, still doing stuff. So they... We're able to say this is what we need to do. But I think the moment of challenge and the discourse that happened was the unchurched helping the church see life through their lenses. And yeah, these were all black Catholic young adults, but the spectrum of life they come from 
and the enrichment of the conversations happen because of those various aspects and perspectives being shared. And thus, this document is a reflection of that. There is work that needs to be done. There is hope there. In fact, the USCCB, several departments of the USCCB have connected with uh, the committee uh, to get this work done on the national level. And in fact, someone said that this is some a document that'll be included into the new bishops training packet and orientation that they get. So oh. yeah, hopefully there's things that are moving in that way in space. But yeah, this ch- this group wants this safe space that we've created to be the same safe space that they can walk into any church, any place, and feel that they can contribute their gifts to those spaces as well. One thing I was struck by in the report and also in the webinar was that in addition to naming some of these concerns and challenges, the group came up with suggested actions mm-hmm. or solutions mm-hmm. and is putting it out there in this report and saying, all right, we're making some recommendations to you. Can you talk a little bit about some of the things that the group was suggesting, what their plans are that they were hoping the wider church might look into and implement? So, so for example, one that was important to the group where is they were talking about not talking enough about the racism or white supremacy that the church has been involved in, right? We're looking at these universities like Georgetown, and I think most recently Loyola University, Maryland, said their ties to slaveholding that benefited the university. It's not uncommon that dioceses in the South benefited from slavery and those kind of things that are there as well. But helping the young adults wanted this to be known so that people understand that Black Catholics, especially African-American Catholics, are not a one-and-done anomaly in the church. We've been here contributing in various ways, whereas free people of color are enslaved ancestors. So one of the things that they wanted to do was having church leadership, like seminaries, houses of formation, teaching about these issues and the realities in the diocese or the location that they're at. So that when these priests are running parishes or these religious are doing stuff in the community, they are aware, but they can help evangelize the community as well. Because let's say Catholic charities, for example, or church leadership, you're out there doing service, social justice type stuff or service stuff in the community. You're interacting with the grassroots people that may not understand the church and the connection with the black Catholic community. And I think at the end of the day, these black Catholic young adults through all this type of work and education want the church to see that the black Catholic, especially the African-American Catholic community, are just as relevant to the church as any other denomination as well or organization as well or demographic as well. And it's the matter of education. Because there's the sin of various sins out there, but there's also the sin of omission and what is not being shared or what is not being taught. And they want our history taught as well. So you mentioned earlier to the Synod on Synodality and Pope Francis's push for globally the church to be a more listening church. Now, I don't know if the timing of this all kind of coming out of the 2019 meeting of Black Catholic leaders, if this is like officially a synodal listening session, or is this report somehow going to be added to the voices I know that there's a call for even more input from people in the pews between last October's international meeting in Rome and the one coming up in October 2024. How do you see this as part of the whole synodal thing? Well, I think it's funny. When I came back to New Orleans and took back over the Office of Black Catholic Ministries, then one of the first things we did, when I say we, Bishop Cherie was my not only my mentor, but my supervisor. We gathered Black Catholics from the Archdiocese of New Orleans, which is a large Black Catholic diocese, to hear their concerns because they really didn't feel comfortable sharing certain things at the other synodal gatherings in the diocese. And once we did that, 
We gave that report to the person that was organizing. And he's, wow, we didn't realize these things. But it wasn't the question. It's like you're in certain spaces. There are certain questions that'll be asked in this group that might not be asked in a general group. And so for this wasn't intentionally done as part of the synod, but I think it was important to gather this, not only for the church as a whole, but especially for the Black Catholic community that is struggling to keep certain spaces and places open and viable, those safe spaces that we talk about that are disappearing before our eyes. And so I don't know what's going to happen with the report on the national level, but like I said, the USCCB, several departments have reached out to us asking if they can share this and use this and post this on the website and do certain things in the future with it. So I think the benefit of this work is being seen in those spaces and places. And even though the end, the part of the USCCB was a part of this process, the Catholic Campaign for Human Development was a sponsor of it as well. Yeah. Was there also another USCCB, the Indian Affairs? Was that part of the sponsor as well? Yeah. It's a separate, yeah. Black and Indian Mission is a separate entity from the USCCB, but yeah, they oh, were okay. as well. And there was okay. the Knights and Ladies of Peter Claver, my office, the Office of Black Catholic Ministries for the Archdiocese, the National Conversation on Shared Parish Life. It was a grant through Loyola Marymount University. They helped sponsor some of this and Xavier University's Campus Ministry Department helped us as well. Okay, don't want to leave anybody out in that, you know, all the sponsors. You know, when you mentioned the Office of Black Catholics in your archdiocese, I'm remembering that in a number of dioceses where there's been reorganizations or having to do things differently, maybe because of financial concerns, some of those offices have gone away or been merged into other things. Do you have thoughts about that? Is there a need to have a specific Black Catholic office in every diocese or archdiocese? I think there needs to be a space where Black Catholics can feel like this is a safe space for me to do what I need to do. So for me, I get calls all the time of parents that are dealing with racial issues in our Catholic schools. That comes to me, even though there's a Catholic schools department. I get calls from, right now we're going through parish closures and mergers, right? Because of this reality. If this office is not here, who are these folks going to be able to call and feel a safe space to be? And even being out in the community, connecting on a Catholic level in Black spaces, right? It's the office. This office doesn't just serve Catholic folk. It's out there being an evangelistic tool and also a witness to the community as well. What's the next step now for this group? The report has been written. Like you said, it's being shared with different folks, even at the USCCB. You had that webinar, which exposed the this what's happening here to, to hundreds of people that were there. What's the next step and how can our listeners get involved if any of them are interested? Well, the first step that for the listeners can get involved is pray. Continue to pray for us, pray for this work, pray for our country, pray for our church that all those that God took time to create can see that they are seen in this church and heard in this church, just as the bishop's document, what we have seen and heard, talked about that. We have been evangelized. Now it's time for us to evangelize ourselves. And we need the church's support and help in doing that work. That's what the black bishops wrote in that document 40 years ago. And that's, I think, what these black Catholic young adults are asking right now is we need help evangelizing our community. We know how to do it, but we need the resources and the support of the community and not pushback when we show up in our authentic selves, that's not Catholic, or that's not this, or that's not that, or this person needs to have proper church terms down to a science before he or she can be seen as valid with the church when no. And so just creating those safe spaces as that. Next steps. So hopefully in a couple of weeks, we'll, there was a timeline for people to turn in the surveys from the webinar. We're going to gather as a committee, look through those surveys, see what was good, bad, what people felt we could address more 
and then bring that to the gathering we have with the USCCB officials that we've been meeting with to say, how can we implement or do some of this on a greater level? And so it's in those spaces and places that we need to see and be better. And these are some dedicated young adults that are passionate about their love for the church and wanting to see it be better. So those are the initial next steps. There's no concrete thing in there. And this is the movement of the Holy Spirit to make this happen. <laughs> Great. Well, we look forward to following up on what comes next after you go through those survey results and have those meetings. So please keep us informed. One last question. I'm struck by how so many of the themes that you're raising, I think, have broader appeal to other young people in the church or other disaffected groups in the church. So this feeling of wanting to show up as your authentic self and be accepted. Are there any other broader lessons that you think this process might be teaching us? Well, I think at the end of the day, you look at this generation of whether it's millennials, Gen Z, or even Gen Alpha that's coming. We're looking at these are some of the most, not some of, the most diverse demographics and generations in our society. How is the church going to look at where they're at? We look at the young adults of our society, let's say post-George Floyd or post-whatever, these young adults were the ones in the streets organizing and doing whatever in there. Where is the church connecting with them, helping them understand this is part of your faith? And so as this document comes out, I think these other generations, these other demographics, like you said, the broader ones, want to see themselves in the church, whether it's leadership, speaking to them and with them, not necessarily having to look like them, but that's a plus educating them and seeing their story being told as part of the salvation story of the church in this country. So I think this document in and of itself will help others and encourage others to help. Look, I need my story told as well. Let me find a safe space to do that. And maybe the church will create those safe spaces for them. And it's been doing that in the past, but I think many times the African-American Catholic young adult demographic, we're easy to go to the ones that we see on a regular basis or are active already. But what about the ones that have left? If that's the majority of them, why are we not hearing from them? So creating those opportunities as well, I think is important. Well, great. And like you said, it really does seem like the Holy Spirit initiated this and is carrying this through. And we at the Francis Effect will continue to follow along with how things go. Thank you so much for joining us and speaking with me today and for our listeners. Thank you for inviting me. It was an honor to be here. And God bless you all in your ministry. This is David. Just want to say that if you want to listen to the entirety of this interview with Heidi, you can do so at our Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash FrancisFXPod. Thank you for listening. On behalf of Heidi and Father Daniel, we'll be back in a couple of weeks. We're very glad to have been with you today. Thank you so much. This has been The Francis Effect. The Francis Effect is produced by Sandberg Media LLC and is recorded remotely in Chicago, Illinois and South Bend, Indiana. It's edited by me at the William Adams Studios in Hyde Park on Chicago's beautiful South Side. The opinions of this program are our own and do not reflect the positions of any organizations with which we may be affiliated. We want to give a shout out to the Salt and Light Catholic Media Foundation. They are not affiliated with our program, but they did give us their kind permission to use the name The Francis Effect, and we appreciate it very much. Please check out their good work at slmedia.org. 
This show is made possible in part by our Patreon supporters, and if you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod. We appreciate it very much. Please follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Both of those are at francisfxpod, and our website is also francisfxpod.com. Please tell your friends about the show, and if you're here for the first time, we have seasons and seasons of episodes that you can go back to and listen to for your heart's content. We're so glad that you're here. Heidi and Father Daniel and I will be back in about two weeks. We're looking forward to being with you then. Thank you again for listening.